Hello, welcome to some of the Book Shambles extras and uh, this one is from Latitude. I'm currently backstage at the Speakeasy stage and remembering the fact that this time last year I was sat in almost exactly the same place with Barry Crimmins. Some of you who might have followed the story know that uh, at that point uh, Barry had found out only two days beforehand that uh, uh, his partner who would become his wife Helen had cancer and we ended up setting up a gig and Mark Thomas and Billy Bragg and Charlotte at church and Daniel Kitson and others came together and we made some money for Helen's cancer treatment and then sadly in January of this year Barry was diagnosed with cancer and died just a couple of months afterwards so it's remembering that that weekend with Barry uh, and remembering the some of the conversations we had uh, he was a wonderful comedian a fantastic campaigner a great great humanitarian uh, loved by people like Howard Zinn and Kurt Vonnegut and here is the conversation that we had together on stage at the Latitude Festival last year Now uh, we're going to have another uh, quick interview and I will give you a bit of an introduction to this man because uh, he is a comedian who, uh, as far as I know, really from in the 1980s in Boston, incredibly important both as uh, a political comedian, both in changing the way that comedians were treated. Uh, he has done some incredible campaigning as well about very, very important things. Uh, about two years ago, a film was made uh, about him, a documentary by Bobcat Goldthwaite called Call Me Lucky. And uh, when I saw it, I was just there's a thing comedy can be very facile and very pointless and we can be very needy and we can be very very kind of foolish a lot of the time and then every now and again you see someone who is uh, a comedian with just an incredible amount of humanity and this is the person I'm going to introduce to you now so please welcome to the stage the pioneering comedian Barry Crimmins thank you Robin Hi, everybody. How you doing? Uh, boy. Right. Where should we start? Because... Uh, North Korea. North Korea. <laughs> Let's, um, Let's just light, you know? Start with something light. Start light in North Korea. The, um, I was just in California, or as it's known during the Trump era, in range. <laughs> the, you... Uh, do you know what I want to... We were talking before, uh, a, a few months ago, about things that you should say on stage and things that you sometimes, you know, we all make up our own rules yeah. about subjects that we think, I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of comedians that are known as, you know, edgy comedians who go, oh, well, I just did that joke because, you know, I'm edgy and dangerous. And yeah, and they're hitting you with the, uh, they're acting like they have a scalpel and they're hitting you with a fucking shovel, you know? Uh, cancer. Uh, yeah, gutsy. Except maybe somebody in the room has cancer, fuckhead. You know, maybe you're not really that cutting edge. Maybe you're just randomly injuring somebody. You fuck. Why don't you find a better target? And you're not so ballsy. You're just, you know, you suck. And I wish, you know, you had cancer. But that, but that's just me. Is what you you told me of a particular night which kind of reminded you of the, the rules where you oh, had a, a, yeah. young, uh, a youngish couple had, had, had come to a, a, right. a club night. Uh, I was doing a show in uh, Boston, and I saw this couple and really weren't laughing much. 
And then I did my set, and they were laughing the whole time, and they had a great time. And then they came up to me after the show, and they said, uh, we have a profoundly retarded child, and only once a year do we get this special babysitter that allows us to go out for a night. And we thought we would, we would try comedy this year. And the first two acts that were on said, oh, you're retarded. They just used the word retarded. He said, you didn't use it once, and you were so wonderful and, and humane, and thank you very much. And it's just like, oh, well, I just noticed that maybe that's like, you know, a lazy descriptor. So I just didn't do it, and they, and they were, and I, and I never forgot that. So I try to remember, you know, I mean, people say, oh, he breaks you know, taboos, he talks about stuff you're not supposed to talk, but I, I really, I try to never injure the innocent, you know, and, and uh, you know, I don't, it doesn't seem like that hard of a thing to stick to if you have an actual sense of humor, you can write fucking jokes, but that's just me. What do you, but the, the thing is about the, anyone who would then go, oh, well, Barry's not edgy enough, but you will, some of the political ideas that you've yeah. dealt with, and, you know, playing the American club circuit, I haven't heard and some of the stuff that you kind of, you know, you, you've had some of the things that you're dealing with as someone on the left, yeah. uh, you, uh, what, what have you found have been the most difficult things to do in front of, of a... Well, of a, I mean, whatever. I always did stuff that was pushing the edge, you know. I mean, I would talk about deaths. I mean, I, I spent time in uh, Central America in the 80s, and, and and I would talk about the situation down there, and, you know, and the audience would gasp because you're talking about death squads and the shit that's going on. But then later on, I started talking about child abuse on stage and surviving rape as a kid. And then afterwards, I would go into the death squad material and the audience would roar laughing like I was doing this lighthearted shit because they didn't want to hear, you know, that that was really putting the, uh, uh, putting the arrow into the red. But uh, it, it took me a long time to figure out a way to convey those ideas on stage. And fortunately, I've had a supportive and good enough audience that allowed me to walk out and sort of, you know, turn the crowd into the, you know, the first chorus of springtime for Hitler, uh, you know, and, uh, and then take it from there and find a way to explain to people that, among other things, like right now, my country's failure to deal with abuse has resulted in where we're at. You know, Donald Trump is the president of the United States, basically because I think he's this, you know, the dog whistle that, that blows for everybody who hasn't dealt with their abuse. You know, it's like, it's like you know, uh, hate yourself? Yes, I do. So does Donald Trump. Well, it's about time we had a president who hates me as much as I hate myself. And now we're stuck in the back of the worst fucking station wagon ride in history because we haven't had the courage to both listen to and speak up for people who have survived trauma. And, and among other things, it certainly includes our veterans who are living in a country that would rather create veterans than care for them. The, um, the, uh, in terms of t this afternoon when you were on the comedy stage, you, t you, you talked a little bit about Kissinger as well. I mean, you know, in terms of that kind of... Uh, it, I would say for, for your generation, the kind of the, the bete noir that, that he was. Kissinger, uh, by the way... 
Interesting news. Kissinger just got, uh, just uh, in a court settlement, received the uh, mineral rights to the killing fields. But uh, there's credit hours with these jokes. But anyway, um, uh, Kissinger, uh, I, I was at CNN one day, and I'm getting ready to go on. And I'm talking to this anchor, Norma Quarles. My back's to the door of the green room. And suddenly she just looks past me and gets really obsequious. Oh, hello, doctor. And I turn around and I see this man there and go, I hate you. I just immediately think I hate you. And, and then I'm like, why would you just hate someone when you look at them? And then I realize it's Henry Kissinger. And I go, and then I pat my inner dog on the head. Good boy. And, and Kissinger, uh, so I, tr I bootleg around the room because I don't want to walk directly into the Kissinger vortex you know, risk getting sucked in and walk around the room and Kissinger's still at the door and he's just sort of standing there like making those Kissinger noises. It's like bubbling like a satanic water cooler at the... And, he, and then when I get to the door, he offers me his claw. He goes, I am Henry Kissinger. And I just looked at him and went, ugh. And then, and I walk out and, and this phalanx of security shows up because I won't shake this fucker's hand. And, and they, they don't really know what to do with me after that. I walk back in. They've, now they've taken Kissinger to the special room with all the security. And Norma Quarles, the, uh, the, 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 the CNN uh, anchor, do you want to shake hands with Dr. Kissinger? And I said, because I have a strict, hand, I have a strict uh, policy of never shaking hands with war criminals. And she said, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird thing, though, isn't it, when you do meet people, because when you meet someone who's a politician who may yeah. well have done terrible things, right. they're quite normal, and they seem quite sweet. Oh, hello, right. Barry, it's lovely oh, yeah, to meet yeah, you. Yeah, and then yeah, somewhere right. in the back of your mind, you go, oh, yeah, there was that kind of yeah, right, right. He seems so nice when he's handing you a volivant. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's exactly right, Robin. I've got nothing to add to that. The, um, one of the things that we talked about, uh, volavons are always an end point in all British yeah, conversations. Oh, right, right. Um, I don't know what the fuck they are. That's why Oh, they're, they're a magical light pastry. Oh, there are places in Suffolk uh -huh. that you will find the lightest pastry I'm, filled no, with I'm, the most hideous ham. I, I gotta ham. tell you, I'm completely screwed up here because I think I'm one of the few performers without sparkly bits on his head, so I don't know what the fuck to do. I'm talking to a lot of people. They are wonderful, but they have sparkly bits all over. He's going like, you know, you got some shit on your forehead. These people look like this all year round. <laughs> Actually, one of the most beautiful things, what I love about festivals, is the way that people kind of adorn their faces. And, and it's beautiful, and very quickly you get used to it. And then there's a point on Monday when they get to their first kind of little chef or their diner, and they go, in the, and they go oh, God, that's reality. What do I look like? Keep it on for a few more days. Fuck them. The... Uh, so I wanted to quickly mention as well, which is the fact that you, some of the people you work with, countercultural figures, the anarchist historian Howard Zinn. Now, I am amazed. How many people here know about Howard Zinn? Right, Howard Zinn, such a great and fascinating historian and campaigner. Can you tell me how that, you know, to get, get a chance to, to, to know someone like him? Well, uh, I actually got to know Howard because I was, I am because I was touring with uh, Billy Bragg, some of you might know. And uh, uh. have a watch, call me lucky. There's great footage uh, of the fact Barry uh, in America used to tour with Billy Bragg, and uh, it's just very funny that they would basically play songs and then have a gag break, and Barry would kind of go to the front and do I a gag, and then they go back I, to the song. My joke solo was always, you know, I would, I would act like I was going to do some musical thing, and I'd go, you know, Billy, 
a lot of people ask me, if you don't love this country, why don't you get out of it? I say, because I don't want to be victimized by its foreign policy. And then the band would go, bad! <laughs> and then we would dance around like uh, idiots. But you, I mean, you were... But one of Zinn, the- Zinn was, I mean, he was my, became my mentor, my dear friend. And he taught me something that's very important. It actually became sort of something I kind of ended up doing. And that is, he, he called himself an optimist, uh, even though he saw this horror, because he did bottom-up history where he studied what happened to the indigenous people, to the slaves, to the exploited immigrants, to women, to uh, gay people, whatever. He, he did it from their point of view, and, and, and as he studied it, he saw that progress came because at random times, one decent person had the courage to do the right thing, to say no, to stand up, to not comply, and a prairie fire started, and we got better because of it. And that can still go on today. And in my own life, I got to do it when I, in 1993, uh, 95, I knew I stumbled upon and I survived childhood and I stumbled upon AOL on these chat rooms where they were exchanging child pornography and AOL's playing dumb about it I first went to them and said do you know what's going on and they like all this fluffing it over and because they charged four dollars an hour to be online in those days they were making millions of dollars off these fuckers and so I ended up as it happened I ended up testifying in front of the US Senate Judiciary Committee and AOL had this really slick lawyer who thought he was, you know, he looked at me and goes, what are you, a fucking nightclub comic? And I go, yeah, I dealt with a few hecklers, asshole. And so by the end, after an hour of testimony, I just wouldn't back up an inch because I was on the right side. I was on the side of the kids. And, 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 and he finally is broken. He's in yard stare and he just says, well, you know, at AOL, we have a strict three strikes and you're up policy concerning child pornography. And I respond by going, nobody loves baseball more than me, but, you know, that's a one-strike offense in any league. And the next day, AOL changed its policy. So by just doing what Howard Zinn taught me, things got better. And there's some kids who weren't harmed who would have been harmed. And, I'm, and now, now, and I never expected this, now I meet kids who were on AOL back in those days, and they come to me and they say, thanks so much, we remember those creeps who were around, but we wanted to be online with our friends, and we didn't know what to do about them, because if we said it to our parents, we wouldn't get to be on AOL anymore, and so we didn't say anything, but now you saved us. So, um, and I mean, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I helped. But it, it, I never expected it. I didn't do it. Someone would come to me and say thanks. I did it because fucking kids were in, in danger, and I saw it. And a lot of people said to me, well, you went through so much as a kid yourself. Why didn't you speak up? You know, I mean, do you think it's safe for you to do what you're doing? And it's like, I don't know. I fucking got to live with myself. I'd rather risk the world's disdain than be guaranteed in my own self-loathing. So I spoke up, and things got better, and it's fucking great. So thanks, Howard Zinn and everybody. Yeah? Um, we're going to end on that. Um, See the film, Call Me Lucky. Go and see Barry if you're up at the Edinburgh Festival as well. Uh, you've done great things. One of, one of the sweetest, best people in the world is Robin Inns, and I'm so honored to appear in public with him. 
Barry Craig. And thank you very much, Latitude Festival. See you again sometime. The uh, really good. And uh, also, Kurt Vonnegut. He knew fucking Kurt Vonnegut. Josie, when she found that out, when Josie Long found that out, ah, Kurt Vonnegut never had a favourite joke of mine, but Barry Crimson, he is. So please see Call Me Lucky. You must see Call Me Lucky because it is a beautiful film about campaigning and the importance of humanity as well. So. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. 